Okay, I went to the U of W, I've mentioned this before, the first U of W, University of Wales, Aberystwyth, Cumrian Beth, and I had this uh, room looking out to the sea, oh, it was wonderful, and it was room 103. So I would read Psalm 103 regularly, it seemed logical to me, and I'm speaking from Psalm 103 today, one verse. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I'm speaking about the mercy of God. Now, there was this mother, and she approached Napoleon. I mean, the, the real, the first, the famous Napoleon. And uh, she was seeking a pardon for her son. And the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice. And justice demanded death. But I, I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy. Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. It would not be mercy if he deserved it. You know, and I wonder sometimes if we think we deserve mercy. When, when I first became a Christian, a long time ago, I was living in England. I got saved at a beach mission, and I came back to where I lived, and I needed to find a church to attend because I couldn't attend the church where I got saved. So I went to all these different churches. And one church I went into was a Methodist church. Methodist church was started by John Wesley and some other people, and I think his younger brother Charles had handed it to. And I went in this church, and at the front of the church, there was this, all the way across, looked like a fence this high. And I thought, you know, and even across the, the middle, and there were cushions in front of it. So I asked someone, well, what, why, what's that fence there for? It looked like it stopped people getting to the altar, and, and it seemed a bit weird to me. And someone explained that this was, um, in the States they call it the mourner's bench, in the UK they used to call it the wailing rail. And what would happen is, when people were convicted of their sins, they'd go and kneel at the wailing rail, and they'd stay until they had dealt with all their sins. And apparently, sometimes this would take 24 hours. It wouldn't just be, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me, um, I was mean to my sister, and then that's it. <clears throat> they would stay at this wailing rail, often crying, seeking God, uh, until they dealt with all their sins. And I went away thinking, oh... Well, when I became a Christian, I confessed I was selfish. 
That was it. I didn't even repent for being selfish. I mean, I did what I was told. You have to admit you're a sinner, and that, to me, equated with admitting that I was selfish. Uh, and yet God saved me. There's not a doubt in my mind that, that God embraced me with that simple uh, confession. Anyway, so I started reading scripture. I have always loved scripture. I was reading scripture before I became a Christian. I read it even more, and I, I became really quite surprised at things I read in scripture. The first thing that shocked me was how much God hated pride. It was a shock. I, I'll just read two verses, uh, Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. And James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And uh, so I, I started to, to understand that I needed to repent of pride because I was full of pride. Um, but then I went on in my Christian walk and I'd read the Bible and uh, read the Bible and read it because it was all about Jesus who'd saved me. And after I'd been, been a Christian for six months, I decided to call it quits. Not because I didn't believe, but because what I read in the Bible was not what was happening in my church. I read about people getting healed, people getting saved, people getting blind eyes opened, uh, lepers being cleansed, people who are paralyzed walking, even raising the dead. And in my church, it wasn't happening. So I decided I was going to call it quits. Except... There was this really nice couple. They didn't uh, come from our church. They came from away, and they said, um, oh, we're going to have a, a youth retreat. I was actually a youth then. It's a long time ago. We're having a, a youth retreat at our home for next weekend. And, uh, oh, she was such a good cook. So I decided that, oh, I'm, I'll wait until after the weekend because I, I wanted to enjoy her food. So I went on this weekend, and uh, what happened in those days, just to show you again of how old I really am, there were things called tarrying meetings, where now we pray and say, come Holy Spirit, and whoosh, the Holy Spirit comes. In those days, we would pray and say, come Holy Spirit, please come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we're waiting for you. God, we pray that you will send, and we did this. One, two, three, four. I lost count the number of hours. We waited and we waited. And it was comfortable, you know. We were sitting on the floor and we were praying and we were saying, God, please come. And, and then the Holy Spirit came. I think it was after about five hours. I'm not sure. But I knew, you know, from when you're sitting there and you're all half asleep and you're sort of praying to suddenly you're all laughing and you're rolling around the floor and you're praising the Lord and you're excited. So that was my experience. And you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when the children of Israel were going, came out of Egypt, I knew I'd came out of Egypt. I knew that God had set me free, but I wasn't in the promised land. 
And that experience, it was like I had a foot. I had a foot in the promised land. So um, I carried on. I decided, oh, maybe I will stay being a Christian. This is pretty cool. And uh, so I, I allowed the Holy Spirit to convict me and to show me. I, this verse, I love it in the, the Passion Bible. 1 John 1, 9. If we freely admit our sins when his light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us our sins because of Christ, and he will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why does he cleanse us? Because he is merciful. He is merciful. Take the sin of unbelief, something I have confessed and repented of more times than I care to imagine. And let me tell you, when, when I come and I confess and repent, God doesn't say, oh, good grief, Mary, how old are you? What is wrong with you that you can't believe and trust me? Haven't I proved to you enough? He doesn't say any of that. He forgives me. He embraces me. Um, okay, I want to look at God's mercy in the scriptures. I love, love the Old Testament. But we have to remember what the Old Testament is for. The Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. We need to always remember that. And uh, one of the big things in Scripture that we learn is how horrific sin is. The, the presence, the power of sin has scarred everything. Everything that God has made. And like I said, you know, I read Scripture all the time. I'm reading in three places right now. I'm reading in Leviticus. Everyone loves Le Leviticus. Leviticus 4, 27, 28. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when they realize their guilt and the sin they've committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect. <coughs> without defect. Sin is horrific in the Old Testament. Unintentional sin is just as bad. doesn't make any difference. Uh, Leviticus 5, 1 to 3. They are guilty if they touch anything that is ceremonially... I can't even say that word. If it's unclean, an animal carcass, human uncleanness... And when they realize, when anyone realizes they've touched something unclean, they've got to bring a sacrifice. This is because in the Old Testament, sin contaminates. Sin damages. Sin affects. And, and those horrible bits in the Old Testament that we all, all cringe at, where God says you have to destroy this nation when you go in the promised land, it was because they had nothing in place where they could change the people and their tendency towards sin. And God didn't want the people contaminating what he was doing with his own people. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to skip on, but uh, to a story where it's actually slightly different to that, 
the story of Jonah. And I just want to look very briefly because I've got a lot to get through. I always over-prepare because I prepare and then I add a bit and then I add a bit and then I take a bit off and I add a bit. Anyway, so the story of Jonah. So this was about 700 BC and there were these guys, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a wicked nation. They used to commit terrible atrocities against the people. They kept captured or defeated. They would lead people into exile with fish hooks through their jaws. They would impale city leaders alive on poles. They would chop people's heads off. And perhaps the thing that I find the worst, they believed that the gods of the cities lived in unborn children, so they would rip open pregnant women and kill their babies. They were not, not nice people. Nineveh was a major city in Assyria. So there's this guy Jonah, he is uh, a prophet. And Jonah 1, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Well, Jonah wasn't, oh, yes, yes, it was, give me a break. Israel was beginning to prosper. Assyria was beginning to get its comeuppance. It was getting what it deserved, and Jonah was quite pleased. And he didn't want to, didn't want to go. So he decides he's going to take off. Uh, One, three. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And we all know the story. He gets swallowed by a fish and cries out to God in the fish, and the fish pukes him up. And uh, then he thinks, oh, maybe the safest place for me would be in the center of God's will. He said, okay, God, what shall I do? Three, two, go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah, okay. So he does it. Three and four, chapter three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. Took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah is saying what God had told him to say. Notice he's not saying, if you don't repent, you're going to be overthrown. That's not the message that Jonah proclaimed. 40 days and you're going to get it. He didn't say, no, 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 but he thought it, although he knew God. So he just proclaimed, 40 days and the city is going to be overthrown. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This was not in response to what Jonah said. Because, I mean, they got it so wrong, they even made the animals fast. Somehow, they had an understanding that if they did this, no thanks to Jonah, but if they did this, that God might, might be merciful. 
Verse 10, when God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And Jonah wasn't happy. Chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah knew God. Jonah knew what God was like, and he really enjoyed God's goodness. And he did not want God to show mercy to the Assyrians. Now, the book of Jonah is a story about mercy. It is a wonderful story. And I could say, isn't it wonderful? If God's willing to forgive the Ninevites, he's willing to forgive everyone. And it is wonderful. But I have to be honest, and sometimes... Let me put it this way. I understand how Jonah felt. I understand how he felt. Uh, I'm going to jump to a New Testament story. You know, I I would never say that uh, these guys didn't deserve mercy. I would say, think, perhaps not dare formulate, that I deserved it more. What a horrible thing to say, but that... I'm just being honest here. I'm going to jump to the New Testament. Oh, I put it down. I shouldn't do that. Luke 15. So this is based in uh, Kitchener. You didn't know that, did you? This is the uh, amplified version. There was this uh, family in Kitchener. They had two sons, Colin and Brady. I had to think, you know, I'm trying to make sure I don't say anyone's name who's here. Hope I haven't. There were two boys, Colin and Brady, and uh, the father did really well. And he had a grocery store. And he did really well in this grocery store. And the, the, his two sons would come and uh, they, they'd work in the grocery store. He'd only let them work on Saturdays when they were young. But it was a funny thing, you know. Colin, when he was there, he would work so hard And if there were no customers, he'd sweep the floor, he'd fill the shelves, whatever was necessary. Brady, well, when a friend of his came in, he'd grab a couple of bottles of uh, Coca-Cola and go out the back and uh, have a drink and hang out with his friends. And They both went to school. Colin did really well at school. The kind of uh, student that everyone loves, every teacher loves. Always helpful, always kind, always there, helping other kids with their homework, always having his homework done, always polite. Then there was Brady. And he understood that he could skip and get away with it. So he did it a few times in elementary school. Did it even more in high school. I mean, why should he work hard? He knew that when he got older, his dad would just give him the the business. What's the point in working hard? 
he'd just hang out and he had fun. Well, his dad did really well and now he had two stores, one in Kitchener and he put one in, in Guelph. And Colin, he went off to uh, study business, went to uh, Conestoga College because that's the best business school. And uh, he worked really hard. He decided that uh, he was going to take over the business. He was going to learn all that he needed to learn. And Brady, he just hang out. Didn't actually graduate school. And then when all his friends went off to college or whatever, he had to work in the store. And he hated it. Didn't have friends coming in because they'd all moved on. And, oh, this is... Oh, what should I do? Oh. So he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I, I need to find myself. I need to travel and find myself. I need to go to Europe. That's the place where people go to find themselves. And I need you to, uh, instead of uh, me waiting till you die, I want my inheritance now. And amazingly, his dad sold the shop in Guelph and gave all the money to Brady which surprised even Brady, but he was happy. So he took off, went around Europe, ended up in uh, Amsterdam. He was the most popular guy because he'd have all these parties. There'd be lots of alcohol. There'd be lots of drugs. No one had to pay for it. He had lots of money, and everyone loved Brady and Brady's parties. Well, one day, <clears throat> it was... Uh, Early in the morning, well, early for Brady, it was 11 o'clock, and the phone went. And uh, Brady picked up the phone and said, yeah. And he said, excuse me, sir, this is your bank. I just need to tell you that you have run out of money because you do not seem to have a source of income. We will not give you an overdraft. I just need to make you aware of that, sir. Well, one of the things we're taking drugs is that you kind of need to keep doing it. So it gets to about seven in the evening and Brady is desperate. And so he uh, walks along the street and he sees this little old lady and because he's desperate, he doesn't notice the policeman on the other side of the road. He runs, grabs this lady's purse, runs across the street, right straight into the arms of the policeman ends up in prison in Amsterdam, not a nice place. He can't get drugs because he's got no money, not because they're not available, but they're not available to people without money. So he comes clean and he's sitting there in prison and he thinks, what am I going to do? They've told him that they're going to uh, extradite him when his time is up, they're going to send him back to Canada, they don't want him in uh, the Netherlands. And he thinks, there's no way I can get a job with a prison record. So he decides to write to his dad. He writes to his dad and he says, Dad, I've been a jerk. I have really been stupid. I've wasted all the money you gave me and I've got nothing to show for it except a prison sentence. And I know I have shamed the family name. I'm coming back. 
April the 5th, I'm coming back and I will be in Kitchener. And I was just wondering if you could give me a job. I'm not asking that I should come back and live with you, that I should be your son because I have so let you down, but no one else will give me a job. Would you please, please give me a job? And this is what I'm going to do, Dad. When I come, if it's okay for me to knock on the door and talk to you, can you just put a white handkerchief in the window of the room that was my bedroom, you know, the one above that big oak tree? Just put a white handkerchief there if, if I'm allowed to talk to you. And he sends this letter off, and April the 5th comes round, and he gets, goes to Schiphol, flies out, lands in Toronto. He's got enough money to take the, the bus. And he comes to his street. He just can't walk down it. Can't walk down it. I mean, what, what, if, what, if, what if there isn't a white handkerchief? And, and he's standing there, and he's, oh, I I should, no, I can't, I can't. And he sees this kid, and he says, hey, kid, uh, I'll give you a loony. Go down number 54. Look up. There's a, a big tree. Have a look. See if there's a white handkerchief in the window. And come back and tell me. And the kid says, sure, I'll do that for a loony. Runs down, comes back. And Brady says, is there a white handkerchief in the window? And the kid says, no, no white handkerchief. Brady's heartbroken, but he understands. I mean, he's been such a jerk, and he turns to walk away, and the kid says, tell you what, though, mister, there's a white sheet in the window. There's a white sheet in every window. They even put some out on the, the front garden, and while he's saying this, his dad, who saw the kid come and look, thought, maybe, that's, maybe he's doing that for my son, comes running down the road and sees Brady and throws his arm around him and takes off his leather jacket and gives it to him and takes out his keys and says, here, I just bought a new car, it's yours. And, and Brady says, I don't deserve it. No, you don't. I love you. You're my son. Welcome back. You know the story, right? The story is called the story of the prodigal son, but it shouldn't be. And in fact, in the Passion, it's called the story of the loving father. The story is told in the context of Jesus is talking to the tax collectors, the Pharisees. You see this at the beginning of Luke 15, and the Pharisees. And he's talking about two sons talking about two sons, one of them comes back, embraces the father. The other son, you know, when, when uh, Brady came home and there was a party, Colin had been working hard that night, didn't get home till about eight o'clock because he'd been working so hard. And when he comes home, he hears the music he hears there's a party going on, sees the pizza delivery guy, and he said, what's up? What's going on? And he will not even go in because someone comes out and said, oh, your brother's home. Yes! And, and he will not even go in. He demands that his father come out and talk to him. 
And when his father comes out, he says, what are you doing? That jerk wasted your money. And now he comes back and you throw a party for him. What's wrong with you? You never throw in a party for me. And that's how the story ends. Let me tell you how it is, um, how it's written in Luke. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your pro property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's how the story ends. And it's pointing at the Pharisees. And you know how much Jesus loved the Pharisees? How much he wanted them to receive God's love? And you know how often I've read that story and thought, that's not fair. Because if I'm totally honest, I identify way more with the older brother, or rather the brother, Colin, the good guy, than I do with Brady. When we forget that we have received mercy and think we're deserving, we find it easy not to extend mercy to others. You know, when I compare myself with sex traffickers, abusers, murderers, I really look quite good. There's very little from a human standpoint that I've done wrong in my life. I was reading Ezekiel, Leviticus, Ezekiel, Matthew, that's where I am at the moment. Ezekiel. When, when um, Lorelei first talked about those, those bags and said some huge number, in my mind, the number was huge and it was overwhelming and I decided there's nothing I can do to contribute to such a large number and I didn't bother. Actually, I say I didn't bother. I did go out and buy some socks and then my husband saw them and said, oh, I like those. <laughs> he didn't know what I bought them for. It wasn't his fault. And I'm reading Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Oh boy. Arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. You know what repentance is? And uh, I'm skipping huge bits out here because I, I realize I've already spoken for a while. But 
Here's a, a, a definition for repentance that I love. Repentance is the tailwind driving us into the arms of God. The tailwind driving us into the arms of God. It's not, I'm miserable, I'm awful, I'm terrible, I'm so selfish, oh, oh. It's God, forgive me, and I will receive mercy. It was funny, actually. I, I remember this very well because uh, dogs are very sensitive when we show emotion. And I read this, and I was praying, and then I was crying, and my dog came to comfort me. So, The way to overcome sin, repentance. Running into the arms of God. God's mercy is available to all of us. And, you know, if I were doing, uh, if I were to draw over here at the bottom there, I'm not because that would be vandalism, but if I were to draw a line, one millimeter, and another one, 0.2 millimeter, if you look close, you'd be able to tell the difference. If you stand at the back of the room, you probably wouldn't be able to see either. And if you stood out there, you wouldn't be able to. But the difference, when I stand next to people who've done a lot worse things than me, I can look really good. When I stand next to the holiness of God, when I stand next to Jesus, it doesn't make any difference that someone else may not have done the same things as me, but I have done some things that I need mercy for, and I have received mercy. Gratitude for mercy given is what motivates us to extend mercy to others. Sometimes I think, I wonder what my life would have been like if I hadn't received mercy. What would my life have been like? I would have ruined my marriage. The things that God has convicted me of, that I've repented of, that I've received mercy for, I would have ruined my marriage. I would probably have committed suicide or at least tried And yet I receive mercy. I have received mercy. And God wants to give all of us mercy. That is his heart. John 15, 1 to 3. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And apparently, that word clean is the same root word as the word prune. Jesus was saying to the disciples, you're already pruned because of the words that I've spoken to you. And so often, people think, oh, when we have bad circumstances, it's God disciplining us. It is not. Now, it could be that we brought on the bad circumstances ourselves and God uses them to bring us back to him. Uh, and in fact, Jonah, when he was swallowed by a fish, that was not God disciplining him. That was the wall he ran into 
when he went away from God. But the discipline is through the word spoken. And I've given you a few examples in my own life. You know, God disciplines me by speaking to me. And of course, there has to be fruit. You know, when God spoke to me and, and I was convicted because I hadn't done anything for the, the gift bags, uh, then I, I asked God what to do. I checked with my husband and I put a contribution in the, the collection because I couldn't find the list anymore. And it was the easiest thing to do. There should always be fruit from receiving forgiveness, receiving mercy. But it happens through the spoken word, through the Holy Spirit speaking to you. So I would like, and I'm just going to do this for one minute, because I don't want any digging around and, oh, what have I done? Conviction comes through God speaking to us, through the word, through the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to give us one minute, and we are going to wait on God and ask God if there's anything that we need to repent of. And remember, repentance is the tailwind blowing us into the arms of God. We are not coming to God for judgment. We are coming for mercy. So let's stand just for one minute. And uh, Father, I pray if there's anything that you want to say to us, anything that you want to convict us of, you would do it now. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Just make that a part of your daily routine. I am going to finish with the scripture. I love the scriptures. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do.